Madeline has had to take to her bed because she's really, really not feeling very well um, and really, really doesn't want to be any more generous than she's already been with <laughs> sharing her lurgy with all of us. So here we are, the ending. I'm sure our beginning feels like many, many days ago. You can probably hardly remember it. But I really just want to start with, with such a, a big bow of gratitude to you all. I, this has been really a lovely week, and it has been so because you've made it so. Um, by, you know, everything that you've brought, you know, you're your laughter and your tears and your sincerity and your willingness to actually just just keep practicing through all the waves. And there's something quite remarkable, and I think one of the biggest lessons for us is that, how to just persevere through the waves, you know, how to keep showing up through the waves. But I've so much appreciated your engagement and, of course, uh, Tuweri, it's been just absolutely lovely presence on this retreat. So much enjoyed having her here. And Madeline, bless her. <laughs> when Madeline doesn't persevere, you actually know she's really ill because she is a perseverer. You know? um, it is always a joy for Narayan and I to, to get together for this week and, and particularly for the women's retreat. It just does feel... So very lovely. Um, and a thank you, you know, for all the staff who aren't here, who I just so, you know, because we get to see behind the scenes and, you know, just the tirelessness of their service is just something really to honor. And their, their goodwill, you know, you, you, you know, it's, I spend a lot of time in the staff dining room, you know, and you never hear a crossword. That's something really amazing, you know. You never hear a crossword. Just, just sort of just this bottomless kindness and support is something really special about that. I'm sure that's not true of all of your workplaces. <laughs> um, so there's something going on there. You know, something is working here that actually works. Um, and that, I find that really touching. I find that really touching, the, the, the embodiment that the staff bring of this practice to their service, to their work, is uh, you know, very heartening, very encouraging. Um, so, next steps. Now we're already taking those next steps. The word in Pali that we usually translate as meditation is bhavana. And it has a very different nuance than often how we think of meditation. You know, when we think of meditation, we think of, you know, sitting with our eyes closed and you're slightly solitary and, you know, perhaps walking back and forth. And meditation, meditation again, is kind of one of those borrowed words because the early translators couldn't quite figure out a way to present what the Buddha was talking about. But Bhavana much more accurately translates as to cultivate, or to bring into being, or to nurture. 
And you have to think of, you know, the Buddha lived very much in an agricultural uh, society, you know, so that when he spoke to people about cultivation, you know, they knew what he was talking about, you know. You know, oh yeah, you want to cultivate something, you know, you've got to plant the seeds, you've got to water it, you've got to care for it, you have to harvest it, you know. But it really needs that ongoing, ongoing care. Personally, I think this is a much better word, you know, because there's other words that get associated with meditation. And for me, actually, the most unhelpful word to associate with meditation is work. It's absolutely the most unhelpful word, you know. I'm just working on things. It's, you know, we have so much to work on, you know. And, and you know, we have such a good work ethic, you know. And we get valued by our work ethics. But often that, and there's nothing, you know, there's value in being able to, to work or engage with our work well. I don't think it's a helpful approach to this path. Um, because work means projects, you know, work means projects, you know, the things we have to work on and how we measure that and, you know, how we can almost use retreats to measure how well our work is going, you know. Um, I, I think, you know, I sort of have this image of showing up at the coal face, you know, and chipping away, you know, kind of joyless, um, but I, I think this word cultivation is something so lovely because it really speaks about this quality of caring for a path. And the path, of course, is much bigger than just a practice. I don't want to diminish in any way the value of retreats and formal practice, but they need to make a difference and to be part of a wider path, you know, and the Buddha didn't just, didn't ever just spoke about formal practice, always spoke about this path of cultivation in which nothing in our lives is left out and everything matters equally and part of that path of cultivation is to do with the inner development we engage with and a big part of that cultivation is also to do with embodiment, you know? how we speak, how we act, how we engage with our livelihoods, you know, the choices we make, the, the things we undertake, the things we don't undertake. This is so much the kind of, the, the wholeness of this path of awakening because, you know, we actually, it really doesn't work to be part-time cultivators, does it? You, we know that, you know. I mean, if you plant a garden and you just, you know, forget about it for a while, you know, things are going to suffer, aren't they? You know? So th this path of cultivation is, is the wholeness of our lives, you know, in which things really matter. And, you know, we move out into a world which, you know, it, it's pretty challenging. It's often very challenging. And, and to learn how to, to find that place of, of poise and stillness and cultivation in the midst of it all is just so important because we just cannot control the way all of the conditions in our world, but we are also not helpless. We have voices. We make choices. We act. And we know that through what we cultivate, we contribute, whatever we are cultivating. And this is just so crucial to be able to 
to ride the waves without getting knocked off balance. You know, I think I told you this. Someone might have told you this. You know, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, when I left here. You know, and I was flying back home to England, and you know, I got to my hotel because I had an early morning flight, and then you know, someone knocks on the door, and it's room service with this lovely tray of chocolates and cheese and flowers, and a little letter saying. You know that the hotel manager had chosen me to be the diamond of the day. <laughs> Whatever that means, you know. However, I was very, very appreciative. You know, very, very lovely. You know, diamond of the day. I've never been diamond of the day before. You know. Uh, you know, I go to show up for my flight the next morning. Oh, we'd like to offer you a complimentary upgrade to business class. Great, this, I'm on a roll here, you know. This is going so well, you know. Uh, you know, I'm still coasting on being a diamond, you know. And now, now I've got a complimentary upgrade to business class. You get on the plane and sit in the runway for five hours. And such as it is, isn't it? Such as it is, you know, and what am I going to do with my mind in that five hours? A lot of things are possible to do. A lot of things aren't helpful to do. And it's, it's really, you know, having access to the tools that we have and the resources that we have, we are so privileged and we are so gifted in having access to those resources, you know, which much of the world simply does not have even the time to access these resources. So it's really knowing how we can draw on this, how we can draw on this, how we can really find that place of actually meeting the world of conditions, often so difficult, and not abandoning. You know? And this was really the gist of the Buddhist teaching, I think, not to abandon. Sometimes people leave retreats and they, you know, they have thoughts about maintaining. I would really encourage you to put them in the same recycle bin as work. Um, thoughts about maintaining are, are not helpful. You've, you haven't maintained things here. You, know, you have sustained many things. You have begun again many times. The moment we have an idea of maintaining something, we're setting ourselves up for actually a fall. Um, but we have to. We need to learn how to sustain, how to nourish, how to cultivate. And you know, many many women speak to me, and people speak to me about you know how they leave retreats, you know, with very big intentions or good intentions, and they're all good, they're all valuable. But you know, uh, continuing to cultivate this in our life, I find personally, um, cultivation grows on fertile ground. And the fertile ground is that of how we inspire and nourish the path that we're on. You know? And this is, you know, I, I always say, you know, like interest is so key here, curiosity is so key here. If we're interested, attention follows. So it's about engaging that interest and to really look at how, how you engage that interest. So there's so many ways that inspire us you know, to deepen and to continue to explore and to continue to develop and, and to deepen. You know, it might be reading. You know, we have, you know, one of the blessings of the digital age is that we have access to so many resources, 
reading it. It's not over-reading, it's not substituting reading for experiential. It's really good to be learned yogis, I think. To be learned yoginis, to actually know what we're doing and where it's going and you know what it's all about. And to find the things that inspire us. Um, it might be listening. Listening, you know, the, the Buddha always speaks that the first step of insight is listening to the teaching. You know, that sounds, you know, it, it sounds obvious, but it's by listening to the teaching that we begin to, to um, uh, question and to have new perspectives, you know. Uh, I found that in the early years of my practice, you know, I wasn't even allowed to sit for the first year of my practice. It was all about figuring out why I was doing what I was doing, what my motivations were, what my aspirations were, you know, the understanding the context of the practice, you know, and listening, listening, listening. You know, I used to sit with my teacher, you know, several times a week for teachings and reflections, and it was all about listening and actually beginning to question views, you know. And some of it, you know, when I look back, it, it seems so, in a way, obvious. But, uh, you know, nobody had ever told me it wasn't a good idea to kill things until I was 17. I mean, that sounds, I mean, not people, but, you know, <laughs> that, that I knew, you know. But, but just life, nobody had ever mentioned that to me, you know, and growing up in northern Canada where, you know, this was pretty much how you engaged with the world of nature is, you know, you killed the things that annoyed you, you know, and there were so many things that annoyed you that, you know, trying to eat you that, you know, summertimes especially were kind of one long killing spree, you know. Um, it never occurred to me there might be a different and a better way to navigate through life. You know, it was listening. It was listening that suggested to me there might be a better way to to respond to anger or fear than striking back, that compassion might be a more effective way. So listening to the teaching is really important, and we have those resources available to us. Sometimes it's nature, you know, sometimes it's community. You know, there's many, many things that inspire us. And in many ways, it's almost like we, our life needs to be one of cultivating the conditions that incline the mind towards awakening. You know, the conditions that incline the mind towards awakening. I think it's really important not to have too generalized an intention, particularly in formal practice. You know, we can have a, a very generalized intention that says, well, you know, we'll just sit down and look at what's going on. That can be fine to a point, but I think in terms of development or cultivation, our intention needs to be much more, in way more specific. Am I developing stillness? Is that the point of my practice for for weeks, months, you know? Is that, is that the de dedication of my practice? Am I developing metta or compassion or joy? Is that the dedication of my practice, you know, for weeks or for months? Am I contemplating beginnings and endings, change, you know? Is that the intention of my practice for weeks or months? I, I feel often that this more specific intentionality is really, really helpful, and it's something we take off the cushion. 
something to take off the cushion. You know, if I was to speak about my sort of annual meditative calendar, you know, I would probably spend six months, you know, really just developing stillness and samatha. Because I, I think this, this just makes the mind a friend, quite honestly. <laughs> it leads towards that nipa puncture I was talking about, the non-proliferation. I would spend several months developing the Brahma-Viharas and a few months developing insight practice because, quite frankly, we need to incline our minds towards insight. We don't practice insights. We incline the mind towards insight. And I find it personally so helpful to take this more specific intentionality off the cushion and into the rest of my life. You know, uh, last year I set the intention with Meta not to have any more neutral people in my life. That was huge. You know, it doesn't mean that I see the whole world, but the people that I encounter on a daily basis. You know, the people I don't know, where my attention, like Vedana, that's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, just kind of skips over the surface. I don't see them. You know, or I see them in their function in relationship to me. But to actually have that commitment to have no more neutral people in my life with metta, quite frankly, has been transforming. This has been absolutely an awesome practice. Because you know what happens when we really attend to something fully. We see things fully, and they come to life for us. So we don't just see that train conductor. We see a person you know, with their longings and their hopes and their fears and, and their story. We see the person, you know. We don't just, you know, pass over the cashier in the supermarket and get out as quick as we can. You know, we actually see the person. And this doesn't mean getting all gushy, you know, how you doing, you know, really, you know, really, you know the people in the line behind us are not going to appreciate that. But, but, you know, to actually see with kindness is really quite transforming. I found it actually to be quite transforming. The great gift, I think, of this practice is that it offers us choices. You know, for choices to be available to us in our life, we, we need to be here, we need to be aware, we need to be awake. Otherwise, we are really so often just governed and driven by habit, aren't we? And governed and driven often by aversion and craving dissociation, you know, for us to change those habit patterns. We so need to be here. Um, and this this is, you know, really a moment-to-moment cultivation, the cultivation of the spaces to make skillful choices, to make skillful, uh, yeah, to stand at crossroads and take the pathways that really serve us well. There's much that we can say, you know, I think the, uh, it, it, it's, it's about having a certain joyfulness in this cultivation, yeah? to actually feel and appreciate some of the fruits that come, you know, you see things fall away, you know, you do see things fall away, and that's so inspiring and so encouraging, you know, um, but to find joy in that, to find joy in, in cultivating wakefulness, to really see how our lives are enriched, how our relationships can be more deeply enriched, how we can care uh, more fully. A lot of my life now, and it's not a life I really thought I was going to have at this point, is 
is caring for uh, my grandson, who's going to be three in May. You know, so I spend really a lot of time under tables. <laughs> I'm astonished how much time I spend under tables with him. You know, it's not really what I thought I was going to be doing at this point in my life, sitting under tables. But I can spend hours under tables, you know, pretending, playing, you know, and, and it, it's, in a way, it, it's just so lovely. And you can really see, you know, if my mind was thinking, I'm too old for tables, you know, or, you know, I really should be doing something else, you know, I really should be doing something more productive, that, that time would be marred, you know. Time would just be marred. And, and just to actually really have, you know, so many ways in which we don't make ourselves joyful, but, you know, to meet life as it is, is the beginning of joy. It's interesting when the Buddha says, you know, a joyful, a joyful mind is born of discipline. That's, that's to me, is a big statement. A joyful mind is born of discipline. And discipline in its earliest, of course, etymology is, is really following what we love. Following what we love. So I hope in your leaving here you, you follow what you love. <laughs> we just took our medicine together. <laughs> yeah, it is always interesting the difference between uh, sitting as a yogi and teaching, because we're talking a lot of the time, and um, you know, uh, being in silence is such a wonderful thing, such a luxury, and sharing the Dharma, talking is an equal an equal luxury, an equal privilege. I want to, um, I want to start by thanking uh, the empty chair here, <laughs> to where we s- still has her chair, and, um, and really it was such a, such a pleasure and such a joy to um, have her energy, and I loved the last, uh, the last chant. I'm going to learn it, so those of you at CIMC, it's, it's coming, it's happening. <laughs> I'm going to apprentice with her and, and learn the chant. Um, and very much to thank Madeline as well. Um, uh, she is such a steady presence, and Christina's so right that if there's any way that she could have been here this morning, but not to worry, it's really seriously just a cold. She's not in dire straits or anything like that. And Eowyn, I don't know why her, her cushion is gone in her map, but... <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> But she's just such a dear over all these years, uh, offering in such a steadfast and loving way the mindful movement. Um, Yeah, I just um, appreciate her tremendously. And my dear friend, Christina, I was... um, I was thinking, you know, we've been trying to figure out, we are losing our memory, so these things are, are not so easy to figure out, but we were trying to figure out how long we've been teaching this retreat together. And um, it's either 31 years or 34 years. 
Is it 34? So 34 years. I mean, that's kind of amazing to me anyway. (laughs) And um, we haven't missed a year. It's not been like one year. And life, of course, is unpredictable. Things happen in our lives. And, um, you know, we get sick and... Uh, things happen with family and all sorts of things go on. And yet to have been able to be here, I guess I feel that it's been a tremendous gift to be able to be here together for the last 34 years. is kind of extraordinary. Mm. Yeah. I was talking um, earlier about rattling around in this building, you know, in my early 20s on a a three-month, I don't like calling them self-retreats. I like calling them (laughs) not-self-retreats. Hopefully, you know, the aspiration is not just more self. But I was sitting with my good friends, Larry Rosenberg and um, Corrado Pensa, on this um, three-month unformed retreat where uh, we were just all doing our own thing, but sitting and walking. And then shortly after that, I left for uh, Thailand to a Thai forest monastery with a really powerful teacher named Mahabua, which is where the scorpions and the poison snakes and the <laughs> and the rats and the bats and um, there were more creatures as well in that environment happened and. I was just reflecting on a life in the Dharma. And I know that many of you in this room have had a life in the Dharma as well. Um, So many long-term experience practitioners, a life in the Dharma. And isn't it a great life? Yeah, Isn't it extraordinary to um, have this love for the Dharma and live one's life in the Dharma to to really aspire to seeing things as they are with honesty and not averting our eyes to suffering. Yeah. Yeah. So I say this for those of you who are on the younger side because both Christina and I started when kind of ridiculously young, I would say. And I say this to those of you who are with us on the older side now as well, that a life in the Dharma is a good life indeed. A life in the Dharma is a good life indeed. It's not as if difficult, painful, challenging things don't happen. This is not a life where we can say, you know, because we practice, life isn't going to still fall apart for us in ways because all of us are subjected to conditions, conditioning, and that is the way it is. So it's not superstitious, like I practice, I practice, so nothing bad will happen. It's not that way at all. But a life in the Dharma means that we're, we're confident. We have a sense of trust. We trust the truth more than we trust denial and pretense and what people are trying to tell us or convince us of. We trust what we know is true. And one thing we know that is true, and we get glimpses of every so often, is this this secret treasure that we carry around all the time with us, within our hearts. It's there. This practice is a practice of uncovering and letting go of our obscurations. And when we know this within ourselves, that which cannot be destroyed, when conditions fall apart, we're, we're, we're okay. 
You know, when conditions fall apart, there's we're okay because there's a sense of being able to to work with those conditions. You know, the best we're able to with just as much sincerity and wise effort as is possible in that moment. I think a life in the Dharma also indicates the letting go of success and failures and being like a great practitioner (coughs) or, you know, a pitiful practitioner. (coughs) You know, like letting go of these identifications with being um, a this or a that. And the beautiful freedom that floods in when we don't have to be a this or a that. We don't lose our personalities, as is obvious, right? (laughs) Someone in early years of of practice, maybe it was my first formal three-month retreat, um, I was told that, that we were going to lose our personalities. And yeah, just someone saying that, that was just their their hit, their rendition or their interpretation that, um, that the personality would, would, uh, you know, I don't know, would, would, we wouldn't have one or something like that. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, certainly that's not true for me. And, um, I don't see it as being true for anybody actually, you know, anybody at all. So we don't lose our personalities. Um, but we touch something that is deeper and, um, and profound within us that doesn't have to do with um, this or that or the ways that we identify with successes and failures and gains and losses and ups and downs and all these kinds of things. We don't take it as personally when things fall apart. You know, it doesn't have to do with me. It's conditions shifting and changing. You know, instead of that double arrow of or you know, triple arrow, but the arrow of whatever it is that's happening, and then the arrow of thinking it shouldn't be happening, or thinking that, you know, it shouldn't be happening to me for whatever the reason, trying to exempt ourselves. But really, just more human, huh? You know, more human, more more recognition that we are truly in this life together. And we are here to... We are here to to serve one another. We are here to love one another. We are here to wise up inwardly so that we're able to love one another more profoundly and more deeply. And just the happiness of, um, of, of, of each one of us being privileged to practice that in our daily life. I do think it's a very tender thing to move out of this very protected environment into life at large with its complexities. You know, we come in in the beginning and it, it, the simplicity sort of aggravates us and you know, we want to be able to choose to do this and that and it's all constrained and restrained and all of that. And then we end a retreat and we're, we're really happy with the spaciousness and with the renunciation and with the simplicity. I don't know if, if everyone's gotten their phone back or not. Sometimes people want to donate their phone. <laughs> we never take them. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's that inclination, that space that one has received from unhooking and then not wanting to go back into it again. But there's a, there's a tenderness in leaving, and I think there can often be a lot of really strong emotion happening um, as we move out into the complexity of the daily life. 
which can hold a kind of excitement, you know, can't wait to do this or that, um, but also can hold anxiety and, um, and sorrow and sadness and fear and concern about what going back into our daily life might mean. And so I just want to encourage you to take it slow. You know, take it slow. Um, it's the same practice. It's not different. It's just that the conditions are different, right? You know, this is a set of conditions. We move out into our daily life. That's a set of conditions. Every place, a place of reverence. Every place we step, a place that can be transformed into our own meditation center. You know, this, is, this feels like a home for many people here. Not everyone, you know, not everyone, but for many people it has felt like a home. Um, but our practice is to find home wherever we are and with whomever we're with, you know? And just the unpredictable nature of life, you know, the miracles of love and not knowing where we're going to find love and the, the poignancy, the sorrows of having to say goodbye. You know, so we're, we, we're together and, and we're going we're gonna to all move out, lights out into the world, each one of us into our own community, family, set of friends, um, work life, difficult people, the whole of it, the complexity of it, and just the, the tenderness of, um, of taking your time with that, you know, just, just one moment at a time. I think in terms of practice being exactly the same here as it is outside of here, is that we can only live the moment that we're in. That's all that is ever possible for us. Yet the mind thinks else, else thinks otherwise. You know, our thoughts are always telling us otherwise. But resting, relaxing with loving kindness, with compassion, with mudita, with equanimity, with all of the Brahma Vaharas embodied in our moment-to-moment experience, come what may, whatever way things may be. We do have what we need. We doubt that. We're uncertain about that, but we do have what we need. And the training and the path of practice that we're on is so brilliant. I mean, over and over again, I marvel at the brilliance of this teaching. Looking at the Noble Eightfold Path, the three arenas of ethics, of integrity, you know, the foundation of the whole thing, which doesn't always feel foundational when we're in a crunch in life and we don't know what to do when we're confused, you know? But the, the being able to touch in over and over again to a life of, of beauty, a life of integrity, a life of, of self-trust and allowing others to trust us as well. And so really the, see if I have a copy of it, I wanted to, oops, I don't. Okay. Um, I, I love the Thich Nhat Hanh rendition of the, of the precepts of because our lives are so intertwined. You know, not because I should or not because I have to or not because somebody's told me to or not because I grew up that way, but because we are interconnected, because our lives are intertwined. I have this intention to not cause harm and to practice with compassion in my daily life. 
You know, because our lives are so intertwined, I, I have this intention to not take what doesn't belong to me and to practice generosity. And I think, I think this precept has to do um, not just with things and belongings, but with offering one another deep respect. It's so easy to chip away at somebody the way we do at ourselves. You know, it's so easy to do that in little tiny ways. Um, and I think this precept is offering one another um, our dignity, our sense of dignity in life, a sense of, of everyone having Buddha nature and grace within, and then recognizing that grace in one another. So not kind of stealing that away from anyone because of our unconscious conditioning and biases and prejudices and just things we haven't awoken to yet. But we can practice whether we've awoken to all of the unconscious or not because that's too big of a bite, you know, awakening to our entire unconscious. But we can, we can practice seeing one another's Buddha nature whether we have or not. This is possible for us to look at each one of us with, um, with these, this immensity of vision. Using um, sexual energies wisely and kindly and responsibly, and not responsibly like burden, you know, the joy of sexuality if you're involved in a sexual relationship, but, um, but just the care the care that we can take so that it's something that is not objectifying or disconnected, so that we're in the beauty of it. Speech, why speech? Ha, you know, you can have all the <laughs> the other four completely not a problem, and speech is the one. <laughs> yeah. If um, Madeline were here, I want to channel her for a moment because what she would remind you of is this um, acronym WAIT, W-A-I-T. Why am I talking? (laughs) And then I think she might also remind you of WASTE. Yes, why am I still talking? (laughs) So just things to contemplate. You know, it's a huge, which area that we don't have have anywhere near enough time to move into. But um, the encouragement as you, you start talking, we have a grace period at the end of a, re- of a retreat. We have a bit of a grace period right now. So you can be aware of, you know, starting to talk, starting to talk, um, and, then, and then the self coming in and presenting or convincing or, <laughs> you know, Whatever it might be, starting to see the um, habits, but in a fresh way. Not, oh, no, there it is again. (laughs) Again is always a problematic word. You know, it's never in the here and now. It's always just happening as it's happening. But can we start to see what those habits might be? Um, And the last one, of course, not misusing substances or things that we might be using to feel good instead of looking within. That's the key with the last one. I mean, one around not misusing alcohol and drugs has to do with the fact that we need all the mindfulness we can get, right? But the other has to do with this basic mistrust we have of ourselves, that we need something because we don't trust that there is this secret treasure within our hearts. And so every time we're, we're like making a gesture of mistrust and we can turn that around 
and pause and stop whatever your your addictions might be. You know, pause and stop and and see if you can find it within first. You know, before moving into um, the multitude of addictions that I think the fifth of the precept entails. I think we have to look at addiction in a very, very big way. It's not just alcohol and drugs, of course. It's all of our habits and our patterns and our ways of denying and moving away from the truth of things. And it's very hard, the truth of things, if we don't, if we don't bring in loving kindness, if we don't remember compassion. Yeah, it all has to be completely intertwined. Okay. So let's um, let's relax and come into an upright <coughs> posture. Relax your body completely and fully, not bracing yourself against the thought that at some point you'll be leaving this environment, but no need to brace yourself now. Relax yourself now. Relax your body and relax your mind. Read something by Mahab Gosananda. We may notice that the vase of flowers on the table is very beautiful, but the flowers never tell us of their beauty. We never hear them boast of their sweet scent. When a person has understood liberation, it is the same. She does not have to say anything. We can sense her beauty, her sweetness, just by being there. There is no need to worry about the past or the future. The secret of happiness is to be entirely present with what is in front of you, to live fully in the present moment. You can't go back and reshape the past. It's gone. You can't dictate the future. So there is no need to worry. The next time I fly on an airplane, who knows what will happen? Maybe I will arrive safely or maybe I won't. When we make plans, we can make them only in the present moment. This is the only moment we can control. We can love this moment and use it well. Past suffering can never harm us if we truly care for the present. Take care of the present and the future will be well. The Dharma is always in the present and the present is the mother of the future. Take care of the mother and the mother will take care of her child. So relaxing into your heart, into the here and now. Sensing metta, friendliness, loving kindness. Sense of appreciation and gratitude for your own intentionality through this week. doesn't matter what the results have been or any level of assessing or evaluating, just because of the intentionality. 
appreciation and gratitude. May I be safe and protected. May I be peaceful. May I live in ease and kindness. May I care for this sorrow. May I care for this pain. May I dwell in happiness. May my happiness not leave me. May I take refuge in not knowing. May I take refuge in calm. Allowing metta, compassion, mudita, inner balance, infuse this body-mind experience. Offer you the strength to move out of this environment with a sense of ease and tenderness of heart. That tenderness, that vulnerability actually being an aspect of our strength, our willingness to keep our hearts open, come what may, being an aspect of the inner strength of living this life as a wise woman in the world. Extending, extending out to the staff here who has taken such impeccable care for us, spending countless moments of thoughtfulness, how to take the best care of us during this week in support of our liberation. Extending to all of our benefactors, our one benefactor, our several benefactors, our multitudes of benefactors, all of the ways we've been benefited through this life. May we be safe and protected May we be peaceful. May we live in ease and kindness. Letting this infuse this body-mind experience. Letting your mind drop into your heart. Experience the light that you are and letting it shine around your body into this whole room of yoginis, of women aspiring to the highest happiness, the most noble way of living in the world.
spreading and including, encompassing every woman here with their secret sorrows and moments of joy. The totality of our being, our humanness and our Buddha nature, all of it right now. And far and wide beyond this room, beyond this building, to this world of suffering beings, beings with the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys. May all beings be safe and protected. May all beings, without leaving anyone out, be peaceful. May all beings completely inclusive live in love and in compassion. We take refuge in the Buddha. We take refuge in the Dharma. We take refuge in the Sangha. Silence is golden and silence is over. (laughs) So please feel free to chat, enjoy each other, and um, see you again. I hope over and over again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.